You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Romans. Last week we began a new series in Romans, one of the greatest books in the Bible. And you know what what we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to study through books of the Bible. We like to go through passages verse by verse and and chapter by chapter. And when that happens, one of the benefits to that is that it actually causes us, it forces us to sometimes look at sections of the Bible that we might, if it was just up to us, we might skip over them. We might be like, ah, that's not my favorite, so I'm just going to skip on to the stuff that I, I really like to talk about. But when we do that, actually what we find is that it's very profitable for us. It's very good for us to do that because it causes us to. And I think today is one of those texts. So I'm excited about getting into that this morning with you. Let's read together from Paul's letter to the Romans, our text as we begin. Uh, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word this morning with humble hearts, Lord, with wanting to hear from you and wanting to receive from you. And Lord, I pray that this morning truly that would happen, that we would hear your words, that we'd receive them. And Lord, that they would cause our hearts to rejoice. We pray that as we look at these words, that we would see in them why the gospel is such a treasure, why it is so great, why it is so good. And Lord, may the end of this be that we love you more and we cling to the gospel even more. We trust in it more. We rely on it more. And we we are so more thankful for it than we've ever been before. Lord, would you reveal to us the meaning of this text for uh, not only in general, but for our lives in particular. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, last week we started a new series looking at one of the greatest books in the Bible, the letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. And last week I made you a promise, and that promise was that if you stick with us through the book of Romans, it will change your life. I stick by that promise. If you stick with us through Romans, it will change your life. Romans will change the way you think, the way you feel. It will change your life. Today I'm going to make you another promise. I'm not going to do this every week, but we're going to just give you a couple promises, okay, here at the beginning. I'm going to give you a promise. Today we're beginning a, a new a section in the book, which goes from here in chapter 1 all the way through uh, almost the end of chapter three this section it's two chapters long and here's what I want to tell you if you will really take this section to heart here's my promise to you as a result of it you will love God more That's my promise. If you will take this section to heart, it will cause you to love God more. I'm going to talk about why that is in just a second. But last week we began our study of Romans by looking at the introduction to the book and the letter. And and by the way, if you missed that, you can always go online, whitefieldschurch.com. You can find all of our messages online. You can listen to them, download them for free, and you can share them with other people. So if you hear something that was helpful for you and you think that it might be helpful for somebody else, we'd love for you to share that with them. So go back and listen to that podcast on the website and everything. But in the introduction, here's what we looked at last week. Paul introduced us to the gospel. He said, okay, what is the gospel and how do we receive the gospel? That's what we talked about last week. What is the gospel and how do we receive the gospel? But now today, starting in verse 18, 
we begin, like I said, a longer section in which Paul is going to explain to us why we need the gospel, how the gospel works and why we need the gospel. The first thing he does is starting in verse 18, he begins to explain to us why we desperately, desperately need the gospel. See, that's the first thing that Paul wants to show us in this section is that the gospel is not just a nicety, it's not just a nice thing to have, but it's an absolute necessity. The gospel is not just a nicety, it's a necessity. John Stott put it this way. He said, nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit their need of him. In other words, if you don't understand that you need to be saved from something, then a message of salvation isn't going to do anything for you. It's not going to move you. It's not going to captivate you. It won't mean anything to you. See, if I showed up on your doorstep at dinner time and I said to you, hey, good news, I'm here to save you. Let's go follow me. You'd be like, oh, I'm kind of in the middle of some stuff right now, you know, and I'm busy and I don't really feel like I need saving, but hey, that's nice of you to offer and all that. I get that, but I'm going to pass. Right? Like if you don't see why you need to be saved, then the message of salvation means nothing to you. But if you say, you know, for example, if you say to somebody, uh, hey, Jesus saves. Like, I think this is where a lot of people in our society today, especially here where we live, are at. If you say to them, hey, Jesus saves, they're going to say, from what? Like, like, what does he save me from? Because I don't feel like I need saving. I feel like I'm doing pretty fine. Like, things are good. And maybe there are some people who need that, you know, like homeless people and people in jail and, and drug addicts. But hey, look, I pay my bills and I mow my lawn and I get my kids to school on time. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. I'm a pretty good person and things are doing fine. I don't really feel like I need to be saved from anything. If I say to you, hey, Jesus died for you. Well, unless I give you some context for why that matters, it doesn't mean anything to you. It, it's, it's not going to mean anything. It's not going to move you. So, for, for example, if you and me are standing out by the train tracks here in Longmont, and, and there's a, a train approaching, and I say to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I cast myself in front of the train and die. You would be like, what was that? Why did he do that? Like, that was completely unnecessary. How does that show me that you love me? I, I don't even understand this. But here's the deal. If instead you were stuck on the tracks, you were caught in the tracks, and that train is approaching, and at cost of my life, at, at risk of my life, at cost of my life, I jump in there and I free you from the tracks, and I then die, you know what you would say? You would say, truly, he loved me. Truly, he loved me. And by no means would you consider that a pointless, meaningless thing. By no means would you misunderstand that. Rather, you would see that as the greatest act of love that anyone had ever done for you. So in other words, like this, if I tell you, hey, I paid all your debts. Well, the amount of debt that you have is going to determine how you feel about that, right? Like if you, you only owe $10 on your credit card and I pay that for you, you're going to be like, oh, hey, thanks for the $10, right? But, but if you owe a large amount that you will never be able to pay and the consequence for you not being able to pay it is that it's going to be very severe and very grave, then it will be much more meaningful for you if someone comes and pays your debt for you, right? So the purpose of this section, starting in verse 18 and going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, the purpose of this section is to show you that you have a debt before God which is much greater than you've ever realized, much greater than you've ever thought. It's a debt which you cannot pay, and your inability to pay it is absolutely crushing you and will ultimately destroy you. The purpose of this section is to show you why you need the gospel. See, Jesus said this. He laid out this principle. It's a very simple principle. It's very easy to understand. He said, a person who has forgiven much loves much. In other words, the more you're forgiven, the more you love. The person who has forgiven much loves much. And so here's my promise to you. If you will take this section to heart, 
the result will be that you will love God more as a result when we're done. Because you'll see just how much he's forgiven you. You'll see why the gospel is such good news as it really is. So in this section, we're going to be looking at this. Why the gospel is not just a nice thing to have, not just a nice thing to add on to your life, a bonus, but it's an absolute necessity. And here's why, because verse 18 says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God, let me tell you what, that's not like the most popular thing to talk about. If I'm a preacher and I want to be popular and I want you to like me and I want you to, you know, be stoked on what I'm saying, probably the wrath of God isn't the best topic to talk about. Our society loves to talk about the love of God, and rightly so. We should love to talk about the love of God, and that's absolutely right. That's what the Bible's about, because as the Bible says, God is love. He's the epitome of love. He's the embodiment of love. The reason that we can even love anyone at all is because he first loved us. But the other thing is that we must remember that's one attribute of God. There are others. God is holy. God is just. And just as God is passionate in his love, he's also passionate about holiness. He's also passionate about justice. And so we have this perfect God who looks down on the world. He looks down on people he loves. And he sees acts of injustice being done against them. He sees acts of injustice being done by them. And he sees people hurting each other. He sees things happening that are not right, that shouldn't be. And just as he is passionate in his love, he's also passionate in his justice, in his sense of holiness, in his sense of rightness. See, the wrath of God is the fair and right sense of anger that God feels about things that are not okay. God looks at them and, and he's not passionless, right? He's not just detached emotionally and says, oh, well, I guess that happened and that's bad. No, he's, he's not emotionally detached. He's absolutely emotionally invested. And so it says that God is, is passionate. And we read this word wrath. We read the word anger. And a lot of times, you know, people will object to that. They'll object to the idea of a God who feels anger, a God who feels wrath. And here's why. Because oftentimes we, we only think in terms of what we feel, right? And so oftentimes we equate that with what God feels. So if, if God feels angry, well, that must be sometimes like when I feel angry. See, but our human anger is very different than the anger that God feels. You know why? Because our anger is almost always sinful in nature. It's almost always sinful. It's almost always related to insecurity. It's one of the greatest causes of anger, if you really think about it, is insecurity. Another cause of anger is uh, the desire for revenge. Or another cause of anger might be selfishness. But see, we, we sometimes talk about, oh, well, you know, I feel a sense of righteous indignation. But if we're really honest with ourselves... How often is our anger really righteous? Isn't it most of the time brought on by insecurity, selfishness, a desire for revenge or, or something like that? See, God's anger is not like our anger. God's anger is absolutely fair. It's absolutely righteous. It, and God has never been angry at anyone or anything without just cause, without good reason. And also, I'll add this, he's never been angry at anyone without fully exhausting his patience and mercy. And so when it says that God is angry, we should take that seriously. We should really take that seriously. And this brings about two questions. Number one, why is the wrath of God being revealed? And number two, how is the wrath of God being revealed? So why is the wrath of God being revealed? And how is the wrath of God being revealed? Let's begin with the first one. Why is the wrath of God being revealed? It's told us in our text. Why is God upset? Well, here's why. Because of all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. If you are a person who writes in your Bible, why don't you circle that word all? That's going to be really important today. 
And you can underline the words ungodliness and unrighteousness because those three words, everything else that comes in this chapter after that is just an explanation of those three words. All, ungodliness, and unrighteousness. And let me say this before we go on. This is exactly what Jesus came to do. See, the, the judgment of God is being revealed. God's righteous judgment is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's what we need to be saved from, from the judgment of God that is coming. But let me just say this right now. That is exactly what Jesus came to do. That is the gospel, right? That Jesus hung on a cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. He took the wrath of God. It was laid upon him. I deserved it, but it fell upon Jesus, and that is why I find redemption. That is how I find redemption. It's the only hope that I have. See, that's the good news. That's the incredible news. That's the overwhelming news of the gospel. So again, why is God's judgment coming? Because of all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Let me explain those two words. Ungodliness refers to our sins against God. Unrighteousness refers to our sins against other people. Jesus said, if you take the whole law Right, All 613 commandments from the Old Testament, if you boil them down, they really fall into two basic categories, two fundamental things that God requires of all of us. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you fail to do that, it's called ungodliness. And they said the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we fail to do that... That's called unrighteousness. And so these are the two categories. If you think about it, all of our sins fall into these two categories. Sins against God and sins against other people. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we have fallen short in these two areas again and again and again throughout our lives. We haven't always honored God as he deserves. And we haven't always treated people as we treat ourselves or wish that other people would treat us. And so as a result, it says that God is upset. He's rightly upset. Because, see, the thing is, he doesn't only love you, he loves other people too. And, and there's a sense in which he is God and he deserves glory and honor. And because of these things, ungodliness and unrighteousness, his wrath is being revealed and his judgment is coming. Now, Paul anticipates the question, the opposition that somebody might, might object with and say, well, what about the people who don't know any better? What about the people who don't know any better? Or what about the people who've never read the Bible? Maybe you've wondered the same thing yourself. How can God hold people to a standard if they don't know about the standard? Like if they don't know any better, how can God do that? Is that even fair? And the answer he gives us in the text here, he says, starting in verse 18, he says, the answer is this, everyone knows better. Everyone knows better. There isn't anyone in the world who doesn't know better. In verse 18, he says, The issue isn't that people lack knowledge of God. The issue is that people suppress the knowledge that they have of God that we all innately have within us. He says, well, how do you know what they do? He says, verse 19, Because what can be known about God, God has made it plain to them. Why? It says why? Because God has shown it to them. Do you realize that? God has shown himself to people. How, how has he done that? How has God revealed himself to all humanity? It says that in the end of verse 20. He says that because of that, they're without excuse. But how has God done that? It says in verse 20, he has done it in the things that have been made since the creation of the world. So if I were to tell you, for example, that at some point somebody designed this building and built this building, you would probably not have a very hard time believing that because even though that you weren't there for it even though you didn't watch it happen even though you didn't see it and it happened a long time ago we all know that buildings don't just come into being on their own right we know that a complex structure uh, like a building like this it doesn't just come into existence on its own like when there's a tornado or an earthquake it doesn't cause order it causes destruction and chaos in other words you know random happenings don't create 
ordered, structured buildings like this. It takes an intelligent designer. It takes builders to take raw elements and create order out of them and construct something useful out of them. But, but not only can you look at this building and know that someone designed it and someone built it, but there are several things that you can know about, that you can discern about the designers and the builders of this building just by looking at the building itself. So for example, you can know, first of all, that they, were, they must have been pretty smart and they must have been pretty skilled because they built this many years ago and yet the roof isn't collapsing on us. It's still standing and you can know that they must have had some sense of art to them, right? There's some sense of artistry because there is a degree of beauty to it. And in the same way, there are certain things that every human being innately, intuitively knows about God. That's why it says in verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, you can't know everything about God just by looking at nature, but you can know some things, a few things. Specifically, you can know about his power and his nature. That's what it says. So you can, when you look out the window at night and you see the, the sky full of stars, you realize there's an intelligent God. There's a powerful God who is out there and created all of this. He's very big. When you cut your finger and your body heals itself, you realize that there must have been an intelligent God who made your body and designed it to work in a certain way. See, all of us have what's called a God consciousness. We have a God consciousness, which means that intuitively, innately, we all know that there's a designer, that there's a creator, and we all have this built-in sense of right and wrong. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Now, we can argue and debate over what things are right and what things are wrong, but at the end of the day, everybody has a sense that there are indeed certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. We all have an innate sense of morality. And so you can look at the sun, you can look at the rain, you can see the things that, that it causes things to grow that we can eat. There's this complex ecosystem that we live in and we need in order to survive. You can look through a high-powered microscope, you can see a strand of DNA and the code in there and you can see amazing precision and complexity. Everywhere you look, you can't help but see the evidence of a designer and a creator. You can't miss it unless you're trying to. See, that's really the key. You can't miss it unless you're trying to. And that's just it. That's the real issue here that the text is getting at. It isn't that we lack the knowledge of God. You see, you have to work your butt off to be an atheist. Like, if you want to be an atheist, that is some hard work, right? Because you have to go against every natural inclination that you have, something that's written so deeply on your heart. You have to get in there and, and convince yourself and educate yourself and work at it. It doesn't come naturally. In fact, it goes completely against our nature, and it takes a lot of work. You see, because to be an atheist, you have to work super hard to get rid of that thing which is written so deeply inside of every human being that there is indeed a creator and a designer and there is a moral code. We know that there are things that are right and things that are wrong and that there needs to be justice. And yet some people suppress that. But now you ask yourself, now why would anybody want to do that? If it's so much work, if it's so much difficulty, why would anybody go through all that difficulty to do something like that? And it tells us that reason. It says that they did not want to acknowledge God. The people don't want to acknowledge God. And here's why. Because if you acknowledge God, then there's implications to that for your life and for, for how you live and how you think. You have to submit to God. If he created you, if he's the Lord, you have to submit to him. And you have to honor him as God. And, and so many of us push against that, reject that. And so we suppress the truth that we in, intuitively, innately know. We suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And verse 21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And verse 23 says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for material things. In other words, it's not a knowledge problem. It's a heart problem. It's not that we have a knowledge problem. It's that we have a heart problem. It's possible to be a great theologian and be able to argue, you know, the idiosyncrasies of dogmas and things like that. It's possible to know the Bible backwards and forwards and still be far from God. You see, it's not a knowledge issue. It's a heart issue. That's what it's saying. And so that's our, our first question is, why is the wrath of God being revealed? And here's why. Because of all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Although they know God, they don't honor him as God. The other question is then, well, how? How is the wrath of God being revealed? How does it, how is that revealed? Notice what it says in verse 21. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. And check out what happens next. And because of that, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish uh, hearts were darkened. Here's what happens. You could call it the dimmer switch principle. In other words, if, if you obey the light that you are given, the light that God gives you, the dimmer switch gets turned up. You get more and more. But when you ignore the light that you have, the light that's been given to you, the dimmer switch gets turned down incrementally, going down and down and down. And the more you ignore it, the more you reject it, the darker and darker it becomes. Notice what it says in verse 34. It says, therefore. Therefore, always circle those words. Therefore, it's saying, because of this, now this is what has happened, or this is what is happening, or this is what should happen. It says, verse 24, therefore, because people ignored the light that they had been given, Therefore, God gave them up. This phrase, God gave them up, is repeated three times in verses 24, 26, and 28. Three times, so it's pretty important. Verse 24, God gave them up to their lusts. Verse 26, God gave them up to their passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. What did God give them? He gave them exactly what they wanted. See, and that is the thing that we must see. It's the scary thing, it's the sobering thing. God gave them exactly what they wanted. See, God's judgment on wickedness and godlessness, God's judgment is revealed in that he gives us exactly what we want. That's the worst thing that we can get, is to get what we want. See, that's how God's wrath is revealed. He gives us what we want. In other words, if you push God away and you say, I will not have you reign over me, if we choose to pursue and worship other things, eventually God will say, okay. In other words, if you want nothing to do with God, eventually your wish will be granted. The wrath of God, in other words, is abandonment. It's abandonment. And that's the worst thing that can ever happen to any of us, for God to stop striving with you, for God to stop pursuing you, and to just let you go. You see, in the book of Acts, you read the story of how the, uh, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, how he became a Christian. We read that story. See, he wasn't always a Christian. There was a time in his life when he was determinedly not a Christian. He was opposed to Christianity, and he was actively trying to shut down Christianity. And it says that one day he was going down the road, and Jesus appeared to him in a vision, in this miraculous light. Jesus appeared to him. And see, here's the thing. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. He didn't want to meet Jesus, but Jesus came looking for him. That's the glorious thing. That's the grace of God. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul. See, that's how, that's how he used to be called. That's his Jewish name, Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, it, why do you persecute me? He said, Saul. And he said this phrase, it's hard for you, isn't it? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What's he saying? So a goad is a sharp stick, or sometimes it's a, it's a bunch of sticks that are held together, tied together, and they're sharp, and they're pointy. And what they were used for was if you had oxen, if you were a rancher, and you wanted to herd your oxen and get them moving in a certain direction, you'd kind of stab them with these sharp sticks, and it'd be uncomfortable. You know, it wouldn't injure them, but it'd just be uncomfortable to get them moving in the right direction. So they'd poke them with that stick to get them going in the way that they wanted them to go. And what God is saying is this. He's saying, 
Saul, that's what I've been doing with you. You've been feeling it. I've been prodding you. I've been poking you. I've been moving you in a certain direction. You've been resisting me. You've been pushing against me. I've been trying to move you towards Jesus, and you've been fighting me. You haven't been wanting to go the way that I've been trying to get you going. You've been resisting. You've been kicking against the goads. And I just wonder parenthetically here, if there's any of you, that that describes you. Like that's your life. God has been prodding you in a certain direction, and you've been resisting. You've been sticking your feet in the ground and saying, no, I'm not going to go that way. I know that God wants me to go that way, but I'm not going to do it. See, here's the thing. God wants you to give him your whole heart. He wants you to give him your whole life. Maybe there are some areas of your life where God has been prodding you and poking you and saying, come on, let's go, getting you to surrender to him, but you've been resisting. Now, I want you to think about that idea now in terms of what it says here in Romans chapter 1, that the judgment of God is essentially this, when God stops When God stops prodding, when God says, fine, you want to go that way? I'll leave you to it. You see, it's God's grace. It was God's mercy that God pursued Paul when Paul wasn't pursuing him. It's God's grace, it's God's mercy that God pursues you. But if you persist in resisting that grace and rejecting that mercy, eventually God will let you go. And that should be a sobering thing for us. See, the judgment of God is being revealed. So that's a present continuous tense. In other words, even now, in our present day, God is doing that work. He's allowing us to suffer sometimes the destructive consequences of the things that we have chosen over him or the things that we've chosen to replace him with. But here's what I want you to see. Even in that, that is God's mercy. Do you understand that? That's, you can see the love of God and the mercy of God even in that. Because the hope is this. The ultimate hope is this. That by handing you over to those things, by letting you experience the destructive aspects of those things, you will see them for what they are. Your eyes will be open. You'll realize and you'll turn from those things and you'll turn to him and receive his grace and mercy. But eventually, for the person who continues pushing God away, the ultimate form of judgment is for God to give them what they're asking for and remove himself fully forever. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the subject of hell. And this is what we saw in that, that hell is essentially the eternal absence of the presence of God. God, whose presence, he is the source of all beauty, all light, all joy, all happiness and sustenance and everything good. And when those things are removed forever, that is hell. The wrath of God is already being revealed, and yet even in that we see God's mercy. Why? Because he's still goading, he's still prodding, he hasn't given up on you yet, he hasn't abandoned you yet. There's still hope, but we can't ever take that for granted, right? We don't know how much time we have, and eventually, what this is telling us, warning us, eventually that door will be closed. So don't make that mistake. So, so next we see, after seeing that first part, why we need the gospel. Because it's not just a nicety, but it's a necessity. The next thing we see is the process by which a society or an individual moves away from God. The process by which a society or an individual moves away from God. So from verses 21 down to verse 32, Paul talks about a series of downward steps, kind of a progression that takes place. Downward steps by which a group, a, a person, an individual, or a group of people move away from God. And each step in this process, that dimmer switch gets turned down, gets turned down a little bit lower and a little bit lower. And again, I want to make this clear. The point of this section is not to bemoan how bad bad people are. I want you to understand that this isn't about bemoaning how bad bad people are. This is all about this. It's to show us how desperately we need Jesus and how good the good news of the gospel really is. 
so what is, this, what is this progression? In verse 21, we see the first step in this progression, this process, is that you ignore God. Ignoring God. In other words, how many of you remember the movie Home Alone, right? You remember Home Alone? It came out way back in the day. It's about an eight-year-old boy. His name was Kevin McAllister. Do you remember this? And he gets accidentally left behind when his whole family goes on vacation for Christmas to Paris. And my kids love that movie. They, like, love to watch it all the time. And one, the other day, I knew it was only a matter of time, but the other day one of my kids said to me, I wish that would happen to me. I wish you guys would just go away and leave me alone. You know, I mean, I still want the roof and the food and the, all, the, all the amenities. I just want you guys to go away. And, and, you know, like, then I could do whatever I want. It'd be just video games and candy, and I could, you know, sleep whenever I feel like it, stay up all night. Everything would be awesome if you guys weren't here putting these limitations on me and making me do all this stuff. Now, I think that all of us can remember a time in our lives when we were kids and we felt that exact same way. I wish my parents would leave. I mean, I still like the house and the roof and stuff, but I mean, I just want to be left alone and I want to be able to do what I want. Now, why do kids feel that way? It's because you didn't give them what they wanted or you kept them from doing something that they wanted to do. No kid ever on the way to Disneyland, in the car to Disneyland, tells their parents, I wish you were dead, right? Why? Because uh, it's, it's when it's time to go to bed and you want to watch another show. That's when they say things like that, right? Or like they don't want to turn off the, the video games or, or whatever it is that they want to do. And they want to do something and you, you tell them no or you won't let them have it. The only time we don't like authority over us is when that authority says that you can't do what you want to do. And that's how it is with us and God. The reason why we ignore God, the reason we suppress the knowledge of God that we have begins with the feeling that God is restraining me in areas where I don't want to be restrained. Or, he did, or I wanted him to do something and he didn't do it. Or he didn't do it in the timing that I wanted him to do it in and so I say you know what I'm going to suppress the truth of that I know about God and move away from God and then the next step in this process is redefining God redefining God so we begin by by turning away from God we, we don't stop worshiping but what we do is we start worshiping other things we create our own gods and we worship that in verse 23 Paul describes how when people turn away from God they begin worshiping idols things which they themselves have manufactured or created now, I think for us in our modern day and age, it sounds a bit silly, right? How could you make something and then worship the same exact thing that you just manufactured and created yourself? That seems a bit silly to us. But here's what I want you to see. That's the exact thing that so many people, so many of us in our culture today do. See, in our culture, we don't create little statues and bow down to them. Usually, what we do is we create our own redefined mental image of God. In other words, how many people do you know or how many people of you have ever said that? Like, well, I kind of have my own way of conceptualizing God. I own my own way of thinking about God. I like to think that God is like this or like that. I've kind of created my own spirituality. Isn't that the same thing? You just created that yourself and now you're worshiping it? How, how can you worship something you created? Or, or we'll say things like, I don't like what the Bible says on this topic. And so I'm just not going to believe that. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And so we come up with our own definition of, of who God is and what God is like and, and the things that he does and doesn't do and the things that he likes and doesn't like and things that he says. And see, there are so many people who say, I have my own form of spirituality. It's my way of thinking about God. It's totally unique to me. I came up with it based on whatever seemed right and good to me. But that's the exact same thing as creating something and then worshiping it. People redefine God and, and they come up with their own version of God. But when they do that, they always are worshiping a God of their own creation. And here's what happens whenever you create your own God. Inevitably, when you create your own God, you will always create a God who agrees with you on everything. It's uncanny, isn't it? Amazing how that works. If I invent a God of my own, 
inevitably, I will create a God who thinks just like me. He's, in fact, just like me. He's only more powerful. See, I'll, I'll create a God who never offends me, who never says no to me, who always affirms me, and always does what I want, and he never challenges me. And amazingly, he has the exact same opinions about every topic that I do, including politics. Wow, how did that happen? See, by worshiping that God, what are you doing? You're essentially, and I think people need to think of it in these terms, you are essentially worshiping your own preferences, and your own opinions. At the end of the day, you're really just worshiping yourself. See, one of the greatest proofs that God actually exists, that you're not just worshiping a figment of your own imagination, is that he doesn't always do what you would have done. Sometimes we get so upset that God doesn't do what we think he should do, or we get upset that the Bible says something that we disagree with. But think about this. This is actually one of the greatest proofs that we are dealing with the real God and not just a God that we made up as a figment of our imagination or a projection of ourselves. So that's one of the proofs that we're dealing with the real God. The, the third part, the third step in this is that we set aside all sexual restraints. As that dimmer switch gets turned down and turned down and we're left to ourselves and to our own devices, our minds are darkened and what is left? Our animal instincts, our hormones, our desires. Verse 24 says this, that God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and to impurity, sexual impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then it goes on to talk about, and it describes in detail, homosexual sex, both male and female. And this is actually, did you know, this is the longest passage in the Bible that talks about homosexual sex. Here's what it says. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with other men. Here's what's important to understand. These things, the, this homosexual sex on the male side and the female side, these are two illustrations of what he describes in verse 24 under the category of sexual impurity, right? So these aren't the only forms of sexual impurity. These are two uh, examples of it. Sexual impurity is any sexual activity outside of God's ordained boundary, outside of God's design, which is sexual activity between a man and a woman within the lifetime commitment of marriage. And everything outside of that, whether heterosexual or homosexual, everything outside of that, everything that deviates from those boundaries and that design falls under the category of sexual impurity and this idea of ungodliness and unrighteousness. So homosexuality is one form of it, but it's not the only form of it. Premarital sex between a man and a woman is also another form of it. See, we live in a fallen world. And so some of us have drives and desires and inclinations which we have to deny in order to be followers of Jesus. We'll have to become what the Bible calls eunuchs for the kingdom. In other words, celibate for the kingdom of God. And that's not just true of homosexuality. It can be true of people who are heterosexual, have strong desires, but they never get to express those desires because maybe they, they never get married. It's not in the cards for them. No one wants to marry them. Or maybe they have a spouse who has a medical issue or is handicapped, and so they have to become celibate for the kingdom. See, this is in this downward progression what happens is we ignore God we redefine God and then we cast off all restraints and we feel that we are are justified in fulfilling every desire and drive that we have 
And the next step is this. We set aside all relational constraints. As we progress away from God, we increasingly begin to see ourselves as the center of the universe. It's all about us because it's not about God. And here's what it says. We become filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We become gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That one's in there too. Foolish, faithless, heartless and ruthless. So as you move away from God, it affects how you treat other people. Selfishness leads to ruthlessness. And there's no sense of fidelity anymore because it's all about you. And the only reason to do anything is because of the benefit that it might have for you. So you stop caring about how things might affect other people and you cast off all relational restraints as well. And the fifth step where you hit rock bottom is where you begin to promote and to celebrate sin. As you progress away from God, here's what happens in the end. That which was formerly shameful now becomes a source of pride. That's what we see in verse 32. That which was formerly shameful becomes a source of pride. And that leads to our final point here, which is this. Let's talk about those people. Remember those people? We know who those people are. Right now, as I said that phrase, the formerly shameful becomes a sense of pride. I wonder if any of you, your mind immediately goes to, oh, I know who he's talking about. I know what he's talking about. He's talking about those people, those people, the ones who do the parades and stuff. Now listen, that might be included, but that's not what this is about. If that's all you get out of this, you've completely missed the point. You have completely missed the point if that's all you get out of this. Here's why. Because if you take a good hard look at this list, you'll notice that this is a list which is not about why everyone else out there needs Jesus. This is a list about why you need Jesus, why I need Jesus, why we need Jesus. See, this list isn't about other people. It's not about those people out there, whoever they are. This list is about us. This list is about you. It's about me. See, we are those people. Do you understand that? We are those people. Every one of us, you are in this list somewhere. I know that you are because I know that I am. See, maybe you're not sexually immoral, but before you start feeling too good about yourself, look at the other things in the list. Maybe you're not a gossip but are you boastful? Are you proud of yourself for not being like those people? Are you haughty, thinking that you're better than them? See, you are in this list too. The wrath of God is being revealed against what? I told you to circle this word. What? All unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Not just some really, really bad things. See, here's what we tend to do. We tend to divide this list up and we tend to make two lists out of it. I call them green sins and red sins. The red sins are the ones we, which, that we're particularly offended by. We're like, man, that's really bad stuff right there. And you know what the green sins are? Those are the ones that are culturally acceptable. That, that we might look at them and say, okay, we see the list, say, okay, you know, yeah, it's kind of a bad habit. Yeah, I should probably work on that and get better at it. But remember what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. The purpose of this chapter isn't so that you can find other people in it. There he is. That's the, I knew that this person was in that list. Here's why this list is given. So you can find yourself in it. The final verse of chapter 1, verse 32 says this, according to God's decree that everyone who does these things deserves God's judgment. Everyone who does these things deserves God's judgment. Who are those people? We are those people. We are those people. But this isn't the end of the story. And that's the good news. I hope you know that. This is the good news. Paul puts it another way in one of his other letters. Here's what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know what he's saying? He's not saying that, oh, he's number one on the list of all sinners. You know what he's saying? What he's saying is, this is the attitude that all of us must have when it comes to the gospel is this. You know who the gospel's for? For this guy. 
disappointed ourselves. You know who the gospel's for? That's what you should say. You know who the gospel's for? For this guy. For this girl. It's for, it's for me. And that really is good news. See, the gospel is that God takes rebels and enemies like you and me and he makes us sons and daughters because he came to us and he took the judgment that we deserved. He took your place so that you could be saved, so you could be forgiven, so you could become a son and a daughter of God. See, the person who has forgiven much loves much. And I challenge you to look at this now. I want to challenge you right now to look at this list again. Be honest with yourself and find yourself in this list. I know you're in there somewhere. I want you to not find other people. I want you to find yourself. And I want you to confess your sin. And I want you to receive today God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And as you do that, remember this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That really is good news. Today I want to encourage you. Receive the gospel. Receive what Jesus did for you. in taking your judgment so that you can be reconciled to God and have life. We've talked about today why you need the gospel. And now's the time for you to say, yes, I embrace the gospel. I treasure it. I trust in it. And I will cling to it because I see that it is my only source of hope. And so today, for, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time, it's time for you to receive the gospel by faith today. Let's pray. Lord, we today want to receive the gospel. Lord, thank you for this good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Lord, as we look at this list, we see ourselves in it. And we thank you, Lord, that we are those people. We are those people for whom you died, the people you came for, the people you ransomed, the people you rescued. Lord, may we have a strong sense of who we are and who you are and what you have done to save us today. May it, uh, may it cover all of our lives as we go from this place. May it change the way we think and the way we act, the way we relate to other people and the way that we relate to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.